0: 11FS is sponsored by Temenos. Join C-level banking executives, rising stars of fintech and industry influencers at the Temenos Community Forum online on the 26th and 27th of May. TCF is the industry's premier event, bringing customer insights, key announcements and the latest demos from Temenos direct to your screen in this two-day interactive free-to-attend event. Hear from inspiring speakers from Temenos's CEO to industry changemakers like Barclays, Varro and PayPal as they share their best practices for digital transformation. Search Temenos TCF online 2021. Financial institutions are struggling to move fast enough to compete with new players. Their legacy tech and processes are holding them back. But there is an answer. Our new report, titled Rebuilding Financial Services from the Inside, is a comprehensive guide to what tech teams in financial institutions are thinking and what they want the rest of the business to understand to help them move forward. Head to bit.ly forward slash 11FS rebuild to download it now.
1: From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you Plaid, team up with US Bank on data sharing, HSBC, launch a global wallet for multi-currency transactions, and N26, team up with Tinder. All this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 530 of Fintech Insider. My name is Simon Taylor. and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, the one and only Kate Moody. How are you doing, Kate?
2: Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I can't believe how fresh you're looking, Simon, given your your latest arrival. So I'm, I'm very jealous of you, but yeah, I'm all good.
1: It's all down to Pepsi Max. Yes, we, d- we did have the FinTech baby. Uh, my wife and I are very, very happy to have uh, welcomed a new baby into the world. And we're, we're delighted. And uh, she's a hero. So thank you so much for, for mentioning that, Kate. We are going to do a little FinTech baby fashion show. Um, shout out to Plaid and Public.com and a few others who sent little uh, FinTech baby onesies. Um, so can we, we can make all of this happen. But enough about FinTech babies. Um, we are joined by some fantastic guests. Uh, Dan Kahn, who is global open finance finance lead at Plaid. Thank you so much for joining us. Dan, how are you doing? Thanks for having me. Doing great. Busy week for you guys, which we're going to discuss in a little while. And uh, making a FinTech Insider debut, we have Brian McKenney, who's Chief Innovation Officer and Head of Strategic Initiatives over at HSBC. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us all the way from the West Coast, doing this one early and a big week for you, which we're excited. Uh, How are you doing, sir?
3: I'm doing great and thrilled to be
1: making my debut here today. Thank you. Uh, we, we love a debutante. Um, all right, <laughs> let's jump into the first story. And of course, this is about uh, US Bank and Plaid inking a data sharing deal. So, US Bank has teamed up with Plaid to enable the lender's millions of customers to connect their accounts to third-party apps. The integration carried out in quote record time gives US Bank customers an API based credentialless. Open finance experience that lets them share their account data with thousands of fintechs. This partnership includes a new bi-directional functionality between US bank my controls and the plaid portal, meaning shared customers can adjust their permissions through either company with the settings synced across more than 4,500 applications on plaid network. Gareth Gaston, who is Executive President and Chief Digital Officer for Platforms at U.S. Bank, said, the overall digital financial ecosystem is stronger when credentials are eliminated and replaced with secure APIs. It also helps customers have greater transparency, control, and security to ultimately lead healthier financial lives. Dan, great to have you with us. I'm really interested in removing credentials. Talk to me about why that's so important.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's it, first off, I just want to give a shout out to our colleagues at U.S. Bank for working with us. It's really been a great engagement across the two companies, and this announcement is a win-win for the bank, for Plaid, and for end users because we're making the ecosystem more secure. And you know, when we think about core principles for Plaid, we're really anchored around <laughs> data control, transparency, and security. So what does that mean? It means consumers are in control of their finances. They can choose where to share their data. Around transparency, it means that they know where the data is being shared, how to manage it, and how to revoke access in the future if they don't want it being shared persistently. And then security is the piece around credentials. So we want to get credentials out of the ecosystem. And the best way to do that is by working with both the banks and the industry and the consortiums uh, to make sure that we're moving to newer, secure API-based technologies. And Plaid, we've actually committed to having 75% of all of our traffic committed to those uh, credentialless uh, APIs by the end of this year.
1: That's a pretty big target. I mean, Kate, I'm interested in your views on this, um, you know, credentials, usernames and passwords, sending those in the clear. There's Is there a, a, a worry that you see when you talk to um, consumers and, and the retail market about using a fintech service? Because it's like, do I trust them with my bank's password? Do you, do you think that security issue is, is one that's held people back?
2: Um. I mean, I think inevitably, yes, for some from cus- some customers, absolutely. We've seen like obviously a huge uptake of cloud know, services through fintechs in the US, and they've got you know growing customer bases. So, I don't think it's been a, a complete barrier to adoption. But I think this is what we're talking about is trying to just make it even easier and even more frictionless. So to me, this just feels like uh, a sensible build and kind of the sensible next step to make sure that there aren't any barriers there and that customers can be completely confident in, in how their data is being processed and handled. So, um, yeah, I think the appetite for this kind of data sharing is definitely definitely there. I think it's been really interesting to see, you know, the different approach, obviously, in the US. This is being led by, by banks, by companies like Plaid. Um, obviously, in, in the UK and Europe, it's been, government led, regulator led. Um, and so it be interesting to see, obviously, what we care about is the outcomes that the customers receive and the services that customers receive. So it's been really interesting, I think, to follow those two different paths and kind of see the different apps we end up with, but really exciting.
1: Yeah. Dan, I'm interested in your perspective on that, actually. You see those two different markets playing out in different ways, and you guys are members of a not-for-profit FDX. Can you tell us what that does in the context of what Kate just said?
4: Yeah. So the financial data exchange, we actually sit on the board and I believe US Bank does as well. Um, It's a group that's focused on promoting private sector standards in advance of government rulemaking. So in the UK, there was initially PSD2 and then open banking as implemented by the OBIE. Um, We are a regulated entity in the UK as well as in the European Union. But in the US, we're operating under you know, a different regulation, which is Dodd-Frank 1033, and it doesn't actually have official rulemaking yet. It's a law, but it doesn't have a rule. And then there's no technical standards prescribed. In addition to that, the U.S. as a market is just incredibly complex. There are over 5,000 FDIC-insured banks and over 4,000 credit unions in the U.S. And to Kate's point, while nobody really wants credentials to be the way that people access uh, their information in order to share it, as a practical matter, um, this still happens on a pretty regular basis. And so we want to proactively work with both the biggest banks, but then also all of the technology providers, all of the neo banks, all of the brokerages, credit unions that are out there, community financial institutions to figure out, What is the fastest way to move consumers to that better future? And I think what's exciting to me about this U.S. bank announcement is that we were actually able to achieve some of those goals in record time. That only happens when the bank really is committed to some of those same standards um, and objectives around consumer control. And they're also really willing to work with us and engage with us on technical solutions that didn't exist in the market before. And so the piece that I'm most excited about is that this deal supports syncing for U.S. bank portal at the same time as the Plaid portal. And while the Plaid portal is still in beta, it's going to be a powerful tool for people to see where their data is shared across all of those 10,000 Unique financial institutions in the US, but then US bank customers, they're going to be more used to just logging into usbank.com or their mobile app. Um, And so you want to have the data available, whichever path the consumer goes down so that the consumer is always in control. Um, and they can know exactly what's going on with their data.
1: I think that like not knowing where your data is, who's got it, who's holding it, what have I given my life away to here, What have I signed my life away for this thing? Just having a dashboard of where all of that is and putting me back in control of it is super powerful. And then, hey, that dashboard can show up inside your bank or it can show up inside a plaid. We're kind of agnostic to it, but just here it is which I think is, is, is really powerful. Brian, I'm interested in your perspectives on like what APIs are really enabling. What are we starting to see as a result of this? Do you think open finances is um, this trend that has reached runaway freight train or is there still more to do as an industry to, to make this happen?
3: Well, it's a good question, and um, maybe a bit of a personal anecdote. So I recently moved back to the US after living and working abroad for about 10 years in the UK and Hong Kong. And I'm frankly pretty shocked at the state of uh, the the payments industry here in terms of how much is open versus the type of tools that are available in other markets now. And I reflect back on my time in, in Hong Kong and the HKMA there launching the faster payments system. And the set of APIs that are available through that are very extensive. Um, and it's not just authorization. Uh, it's also and not just push payments, but also pull payments. And the type of experiences and benefits that can be delivered to consumers and businesses with those types of open API frameworks that are set centrally and done so in a really open way with the interest of the community and the participants uh, at heart. Um, I think really uh, offer up the best way forward. And so I'm hopeful that we start to see that trend uh, taking place in more markets. But India is probably another one to shout out. UPI in India really enables
1: uh, great innovation and customer outcomes. And I think on that, Dan, uh, Brian makes some great points there about where you you, you kind of have the market structure. Looking at the US market, what do you think the appetite for from the from the consumer from entrepreneurs is for open finance beyond open banking? So beyond the account data, I know Plaid and others now do payroll. There's um, other products besides just the checking account. Do you think that appetite is there, and what what could that unlock?
4: So, Simon, we know that that appetite is there, and I've heard Keith, our head of the UK, kind of joke about how. The UK is probably five years ahead of the market on regulations and standards, but the US is actually five years ahead on deployment. Um, And part of that is that there are a lot of market incentives for companies like Plaid to give these building blocks, these APIs to developers and then tell the developers, okay, here's your opportunity to build novel use cases. Um, We know that consumers are opting into this, tens of millions of consumers every quarter Uh, are choosing to use these services. And by the way, it's not just fintechs, right? We see banks and credit unions now taking the same approach to digital product development, and they're not saying we have to build everything in-house. They're saying, hey, what APIs are out there um, to control fraud? What APIs are, are out there to permission data? What APIs are out there to do payments? And there's players in each of these spaces that actually can help you as a financial institution, build your products and services faster. Um, And so, you know, it's really one of these things where like, you have to start by making everything a little bit of a Lego block. And then as Brian said, there's the opportunity to build more and more over time and give people a broader set of tools. Um, It's not one company that's going to provide all of the tools, but we think that If we do a really good job in one space, as you said, you know, there might be opportunities if we're already doing banking data to start looking into payroll data uh, or to help with demand deposit switching, which is a product that's in beta that we announced earlier this year. So there are tons of opportunities that are still out there. There's lots of startups springing up to address these issues. Um, And the U.S. is a big market, but we think internationally there's tons of interesting stuff happening as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That idea that um, there is somebody who's built an API that does what was a cost center for the bank better than the bank would cheaper as a specialist is, is I think, one that's really started to resonate, especially during the pandemic, especially for community banks or or banks that relied on that in-person, in-branch KYC model to to really bring on a customer. Sometimes just using open banking to check that I've already KYC'd this customer for checking. I don't need to bring them through KYC for a mortgage. Can I just use open banking for that? Like that, I've already KYC'd them in my institution. Why wouldn't I just use Plaid for that if it can get around having to do my paper process? And and that dawning on the industry, I think is a really, really good set of progress. Uh, Dan, I, I could talk to you all day about this, but um, I'm going to have to move us to the next story. And the next one is about our friends over at HSBC, who are apparently taking on fintech rivals now with a multi-currency digital wallet. So I'm um, taking the fight to fintech rivals um, uh, with a multi-currency digital wallet that enables businesses to make international payments simply and securely. The HSBC Global Wallet launches initially in the US, UK and Singapore with payment capabilities in euros, UK pounds sterling, Hong Kong dollars, Canadian dollars, Singapore dollars and Australian dollars and the Malaysian ring. HSBC clients will be able to send money in a number of currencies and hold and manage those currencies. The bank says it will add the ability to receive payments later in the year. The global wallet is targeted at small and medium-sized businesses with an international supply chain and is fully integrated into the business banking platform. The wallet should make it easy to deal with international suppliers as dealing with local ones. Uh, So Brian, it's uh, probably right that we come to you first on this. Firstly, well done on getting the thing launched. What more can you tell us about this one? Thanks, Simon. Uh, We're really excited about HSBC Global Wallets.
3: From a single account, customers can create digital wallets in multiple currencies and have the ability to pay, receive, and hold like a local in each of those markets around the world. And that's without having to go open physical bank accounts in those markets. So we're really giving customers access to our global network to help make international business simple and secure. And we did this to help small and medium-sized businesses we're seeing them internationalizing even earlier in their life cycle especially digitally native businesses that have access to these amazing platforms and these internet growth opportunities where you can find new customers and suppliers in new markets really quickly and the customer feedback we've received today has been
1: very positive that's pretty pretty cool i love that digital native um anecdote there because i think those businesses that are naturally, you know, in the digital world, global is a given because we can communicate in real time. Um, so tell us more about why pay like a local was 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 important to the feel of the product.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's it, well, this let me tell you how it works, which is it's quite simple. So say you're a UK based company, you've got suppliers in Hong Kong, you can create a Hong Kong wallet. Uh, Hong Kong dollar wallet, and you top that up from your GBP account, with a simple transparent uh, rate on that exchange. And then when you want to make a local payment, uh, you do so by just sending it to the domestic account details of your Hong Kong supplier. And we execute that transaction locally. Um, and that gives businesses confidence in the amount that's going to get through and when it's going to get through and why that's been so important um, for for businesses. When you're trying to manage currencies, you know, you don't know exactly and you're exposed to a risk of how much you're trying to pay. It might be less that reaches your customer. Um, You might receive less than you're expecting. and, And this is giving them confidence and doing so in a simple way that's also integrated into the rest of their business banking channel. So it's both your international domestic financial needs are all seamlessly integrated into one experience.
1: Yeah. There's, there's value in being in the context, right? So like I was already going there and now I've got this service here is, is super valuable. I think this. Uh, an anecdote I like from my old um, Cybos and Swift days, which was like, it's crazy that in, in this day and age, still most business payments, I don't know uh, how much it's going to cost to make the payment, when it's going to get there, or even if it got there. And actually, just giving that confidence and comfort around it is is super valuable from, from a business user's standpoint. Um, and Kate, you know, we've looked at um, B2B payments and SMBs and, and supply chains quite a lot in, in our work. Uh, what are the what are some of the big barriers from a customer standpoint around payments that you've seen um, there's some good stats from the World Bank there's a few of the bits and pieces but what, what have you seen
2: um yeah I mean definitely recognize a lot of what what Brian was talking about certainly when we we speak to small and medium-sized businesses that kind of you know, when they do start to become international you know, as you're scaling it becomes kind of one of the key elements of your business that you are looking to Make more efficient to kind of make smarter, make more sensible, um, and it's at the moment or certainly today it's, has been like hugely challenging for lots of these businesses to work out like what they should be doing, how they should be managing those payments, um, and yeah, that kind of uh, situation you know, you've been talking about, and Brian's been talking about about you know, just you know, the timings, the costs. You know, it kind of seems to be this constant trade-off that businesses are having to make about you know how much will this cost. How long do I have to send the payment? when does it actually have to arrive? How long will it take? How secure is it going to be? And so businesses are often having to send payments in different channels and different ways to try and fit different business requirements and it's messy and complicated and very stressful. So um, any kind of innovation in this space, I think can only help these types of businesses to to grow and to be more efficient. Um, and yeah, so obviously we've talked about you know we, we see huge stats and just the volumes of these payments that are moving are inc- constantly increasing. You know, to Brian's point more and more businesses are accessing these online international digital platforms to grow their businesses the world is only going to get smaller uh, and international payments kind of needs to needs to catch up so I'm super excited to see obviously you know Brian you've kind of talked about some of the initial markets you're focusing on I'm really excited to see where you go next obviously it kind of makes sense kind of where you started but I'd love to kind of get a sense of the the ambition for for the wallet like how how globally are you going to go
3: Well, when talking about international payments, one thing we've learned is the receiving side is in some ways an even bigger challenge. So how do I collect from my customers abroad? So one of the things that we're currently working on, we actually have bits of this already live and, and we're building out further over the coming months, is to receive like a local across this network as well. And that way you can give your customers local account details and you get paid into that same Hong Kong dollar wallet, let's say, and now you've got outgoings and incomings in these currencies and you're able to manage your foreign exchange risk and almost like create a natural hedge. And so that's an area of product expansion that we see is gonna be really helpful to customers and then taking it to more markets. More markets, more currencies, both your sort of G10 currencies as well as your emerging market currencies, we're really following the customers We've been with them from the very day that we created this concept, and so we're we're building
1: out that roadmap to meet those needs. Good old good old roadmap there. I love the ambition, Dan. What are your perspectives on this as you look at um, business payments and global payments?
4: Yeah, so I mean, obviously, the world is getting smaller every day. So um, the way that that gets solved will be really interesting to see. I'm curious, um, since I know a lot of banks have made. Rumblings about using blockchain and crypto and different technologies to see if these initiatives ever start to overlap or um, kind of converge with some of those same technologies. So, in, in this case,
3: it's it's uh, for us they're separate, and yet obviously we have blockchain uh, opportunities that we're pursuing, and that convergence may may come. I think to your point, um, and at the moment. Um, not yet is sort of what I'm seeing, but we'll, we'll see, I think
1: it's an ins- a very interesting space to watch. Generally, if we're building better from the, uh, experience side and better from the infrastructure side, it's logical that those things may one day meet. Somewhere in the middle. Um, and, and I, I'm interested, as you mentioned, sort of dealing with, um, supply chains and shipping, there's a whole bunch of pain around the payment as well. You know, what have you seen, Brian, as you've looked at the SMB space? What have you looked at? You know, the, the making a payment is hard, receiving a payment is hard, but that's part of it uh, of running a business as well. So what have you learned from customers? What surprised you in the journey?
3: <laughs> One thing is the the needs that the actions that customers have to take sometimes to get their needs met. So we had a customer who told us that they had a good Australian flows. So they flew their CEO, chairman and finance director down to Australia to open an account. And 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 that was required for them to meet their business needs whereas with something like this they could have never left their couch. Um so it's it's sort of like the the requirements put upon businesses to meet their needs can be a real mismatch versus what it could be in terms of bringing that simpler experience.
2: You're gonna deprive a lot of business people of you know, expensive holidays, so Brian. so you know you could get could get complaints.
3: <laughs> Not that one can travel into Australia these days anyways. <laughs>
1: Well, well, indeed. Yeah, the world is becoming digital. And uh, maybe you give them a Zoom background of somewhere beautiful in Australia. Shout out to our Australian listeners um, on on all of that. And we know um, business payments and open banking um, are are big, big subjects in that part of the world as well. Um, I'm going to take a quick pause here because we do have to uh, thank our sponsors and we will be back shortly.
0: This podcast is sponsored by WaveMaker, the versatile low-code platform that can build more than just apps. Has your IT modernization hit a bottleneck? Do you need to turbocharge your product development? WaveMaker provides a rich drag-and-drop studio for citizen developers and professional coding and API tools for advanced developers crafting serious banking and financial solutions. WaveMaker's open standards architecture enables further customization of the platform for app developers to easily consume your APIs. The possibilities are endless. Visit www.wavemaker.com today. With a global consumer panel of 15 million registered members, over 11 years of historic single source data, and proprietary technology that connects data and simplifies the research process, YouGov is home to the largest collection of constant, entirely permissioned consumer opinion and rich behavioral intelligence in the world. To learn more, visit business.yougov.com.
1: All right. Thank you so much to our sponsors. Uh, This story comes from Uh, TechCrunch. Amount.com has raised $99 million to help banks better compete with fintechs. They got $99 million, but a problem ain't one. There's a joke in there somewhere. Listeners, you'll find it. Anyway... Um, the company provides technology to banks and financial institutions. has raised ninety nine million dollars in its Series D funding round at a valuation of just over a billion dollars. Notably, the investment comes just five months after they raised eighty six million dollars in a Series C uh, led by Goldman Sachs, and that just came three months after they raised fifty eight million in a Series B. The latest funding brings amounts total capital to two hundred forty three million dollars since it spun off from Avant in January of 2020. Um, for those that don't know, Avant is a subprime lender um, that had a technology division that spotted out. Really interesting story. In simple terms, Amount's mission is to help financial institutions go digital in months, not years, and thus better compete with fintech rivals. Go digital in months, not years. But But how, Kate? How is any of this possible?
2: Um, well I mean, I'm I'm definitely not the technical expert to kind of look at kind of stuff behind the surface. But I mean, I love their their website. If you go on their website, they've got a sort of picture of a big elephant with butterfly ears on it. So that's obviously kind of clear how they've diagnosed the the industry is the the incumbents are the elephants and, and they're the butterflies. So yeah, it's 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 exciting. They've they've had obviously a great amount of success. You know, there's quite a long list of, of Banks, they've already signed up as as partners. Um, So yeah, across kind of multiple different markets. So and the success that they've had in terms of their fundraising obviously indicates that they're able to put a case in front of those investors that they can really integrate well with these institutions, which I think has been the challenge. I think lots of companies in the past have promised that they can come into these big companies and make life easier and you assume based on the kind of fundraising success that they're actually able to demonstrate some, some actual returns on that. So yeah, kind of very exciting to see. You do wonder if they've kind of concentrated all of their fundraising in such a short period of time just to avoid having to have like staff celebration parties because of like lockdowns and COVID. But um, yeah, it's an incredible track record of, of fundraising and valuation growth in such a short window of time. So they're, they're really, really hitting their stride
1: fundraising is such a momentum game but you only get that momentum if you're getting traction and they must be delivering the traction and some of their client list td bank regions banco popular barclays us um there are big banks using this technology as well as small ones I, I like that point you made earlier dan where you said um you know people are hiring apis instead of divisions and teams of people is it where do you see amount.com in that you know what, what role are they playing for some of the banks
4: Yeah. So, I mean, the tagline is great. Go digital in months, not years. And I think to Kate's point, like this COVID-19 year has really catalyzed that. So, you know, we did a survey earlier this year and in the US, 80% of respondents said they can now manage their money entirely without a bank branch. And 73% said they plan to continue managing their finances digitally um, because they really see this more fintech-centric way of Operating as the new normal. Um, So, you know, big banks are reacting to that, whether big banks or community banks or credit unions, anybody who had a physical store. um, And that's, you know, when I worked in banking, that's what we called them. They were stores. um, And that's where people got the products because it was the retail environment. But in the future, you know, people are going to be getting these products and services over their phone. They're going to be doing it on their computer, on their iPad. And companies like Amounts honestly are building something that's in some ways potentially more valuable than the original concept of the company. So I don't know what the current uh, valuation of Avant is, but I wouldn't be surprised if Amount ends up being worth more than the company that it spun out of.
1: It's interesting that tech companies seem to be doing better than lenders, definitely, as you you look at the market, Dan. You see that fairly consistently. Um, they've built as well what they describe as a battle-tested retail banking and point-of-sale technology. Um, and I saw in the Barclays press release, for instance, they're using them for the point-of-sale lending. So allowing a lot of banks to use their balance sheet to start moving into point-of-sale lending, which has been huge for companies like Klarna, huge for companies like Affirm as a, as a new type of lending. But it's this tech-driven approach that's that's really, really interesting. Um, a good friend of ours, Jason McCullough, often um, has blogged on, on fintech. Tech Business Weekly, that uh, we had that sort of first round of uh, lending business that came out, was it um, 10 years ago? And I can't remember some of the names of the companies, Like I'm feeling like Lending Club and a few of the others who initially had tech multiples, but then were valued as a lending business, whereas now actually being one of these tech suppliers is a, is a really great place to be in fintech. It's almost selling shovels in a, in a gold rush, more or less. Brian, I'm interested in your thoughts on this. What do you, what do you think about when you look at businesses like Amount.com?
3: I think they can be extremely helpful for banks. Uh, I mean, banks need help, uh, engineering talent, uh, capabilities, products that are built on modern technology. These are all accelerants. And so, you know, I've worked with a number of fintechs directly. And one of the things I would share to anyone on that side listening in is, uh, be pre- especially if you're in the earlier stages, be prepared to get really deep into your technology themselves. We like to do source code reviews, for instance, Um, you know, what people can write on a presentation is not necessarily what the quality of the actual product is. But we've seen some early stage companies that have excellent tech products and we're willing to work with those companies uh, and bring those capabilities online uh, for our customers. So I think this sort of activity in the sector is extremely
1: beneficial to all participants. Uh, all participants, indeed. And do you think, Kate, to both of those points, you know, there, is there a trust thing of uh, going digital with the brand? I understand that that, you know, especially in the pandemic, the, the the consumer has has really benefited from by instead of going to this this new brand that I hadn't heard of, are we bringing different people into the digital um, digital space?
2: Um, I think it's hard to sort of say definitively, like one or the other. I think we've obviously seen huge growth. Uh, particularly in the US, for example, we've got US guests on today. So, you know, we we're talking about current never the week, you know, They've seen huge growth. So obviously some of these new platforms have moved customers successfully over from incumbents. Um, but it also obviously has been an opportunity for these existing banks to take their current customers and just help them to do more online. Um so you know, even in the UK, like for example, like I cashed a check-in digitally with my app. Um Lloyd's for the first time the other week. You know, I've not done that before. So just having opportunities to do, which probably makes me sound like horribly back, horribly backwards, given that I work for 11FS, but um, I don't receive many checks, so I just haven't had uh, the opportunity to do it. But yeah, I think there's a, a real, it's, it's a double win. You know, customers who have stayed with their current banks are able to do more uh, and customers have also kind of taken the opportunity to to move to new platforms as well. So I think it's it's been kind of growth on in, in both sides. And as we've talked about, you know, the US market is huge. So at the moment, there's room for both. Whether that will stay the case, we'll see as some of these FinTech these platforms get bigger and bigger.
1: Dan, I can imagine if you're a bank, the pitch from Amount.com is pretty compelling as well. My understanding is businesses like Amount and, and many others as well, so blend.com, they work on a, on a success model. So you you only pay per account originated. So if if the platform successfully helps you get a new customer you then pay amount.com or blend.com or whoever it is, your supplier, a fee, but you're also getting revenue. So it it's sort of functions as, as a revenue share. Is there something that you've learned from working in a, in a SaaS model about you know, sort of banks coming to that model and working with it that's, that they like? And what, and what do they generally have to learn about working in that model? Because I'm interested, you obviously work now with a lot of big banks who are, who are coming into that space.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think... The interesting thing, as Brian pointed out, is that sometimes it's hard to align the incentives within a large financial institution, especially across, you know, business, technology, marketing. There, there's a lot of folks who are stakeholders and getting them all to agree on the same terms is really hard. When you have somebody like an amount, and you know, there's a lot of other players in the space, including some more traditional providers uh, that are also doing the same type of thing, they can do pay for success. And then they're often including exactly the thing I talked about before, the APIs. So, you know, we're working with a lot of these folks that actually sell into the banks and they're including something from Plaid. Um, They could be including a fraud check from somebody like an alloy who's like an API fraud provider on the back end. And the bank doesn't have to do the vendor diligence on all of those APIs. They're just included as part of the package and then the package is actually a solution not a set of apis so that's like one of the big things that i've seen consistently over my kind of 4 plus years working at plaid is that banks don't banks it's very rare that they purely want to buy an api but they desperately want to buy solutions and so the companies that can figure out how to sell a full stack solution that includes best of breed across all of the different functions Um, And then those tech companies like Amount don't even have to necessarily build it all themselves. They just have to package it correctly.
1: Yeah, the problem with unbundling is somebody has to rebundle it, and the banks may not necessarily want to do all of that. So something like an amount and, and many many others um, can can start to do that. And of course, then the the API providers sometimes vary by market. I know Plaid is becoming more global, um, but not that's not the case for everywhere. And there's different um, regulatory reasons why some fraud providers don't exist in, in some parts of the world. So as as this becomes more of a theme, it's going to be going to be an interesting one to watch. All right, I'm going to move us to the next story. Um, This one comes from an extra, and this is, uh, US banks are going to pilot credit for people with no credit score. Several big American banks, including J.P. Morgan Chase, are signed up for a new government-backed pilot using alternative data to get credit to people with low or no credit scores, according to the Wall Street Journal. Around 53 million American adults do not have regular credit scores, There's the firm behind the FICO scores, and the problem disproportionately affects Black and Hispanic people. The pilot, set for later this year, will see about 10 banks assess creditworthiness based on users' account balances and overdraft history. To do this, participants, including US Bank and Wells Fargo, will share customer deposit data from checking and savings accounts. They could do this either through the main credit reporting players or the bank-owned firm behind Zelle early warning services. Federal banking regulators in the US signaled their support back in 2019 for the use of alternative data rather than traditional credit scores. Dan, I'm, I'm gonna to come to you on this because this feels fairly wheelhouse for Platt. I mean, people have been using Platt to, to do this sort of thing f- for quite some time. What are your thoughts as as you look at this um this trend and, and what are the pros and cons of using you know sort of historic data to to assess um, affordability and creditworthiness?
4: Well, I mean. Just first off, we're really excited to see this initiative get some more traction publicly. Um, This is something that uh, the OCC has been working on for a while. It's called Project Reach. Um, Plaid, we're one of the Workstream participants, along with some of those large national financial institutions that you mentioned. And the core of the idea is that there is a huge group of people that are financially excluded in the U.S. I think it's roughly 53 million adults who don't have... Uh, a full credit score. So they're either thin file or no file. And to the extent that they have alternative data that can be leveraged, they should be able to opt in to do that. And I think that's Simon where you're mentioning that Plaid has historically been a leader and you know we plan to continue powering a lot of those use cases where it's directly permissioned by the end user. and there is that transparency and control and security layer. Um, I think what this is saying is that some of the big banks, because the government is engaging and giving them the green light, they're going to be able to now start to use some of that same data um, in order to reach these customers that are, you know, in general, very difficult for traditional underwriting models to approve.
1: Yeah, I'm interested just to to double down on that. How important is that regulatory backing, do you think, for those big banks? Was there a restance or was it just sort of it, it was going to take some time to get
4: there? So, I mean, I worked at Capital One, and Capital One was probably the bank that did the most uh, to reach into the subprime lending in the 1990s and 2000s. But I think a lot of the larger banks have really held off just because they have a really big franchise. Um, they're serving a main street population. Um, but like, if they don't have that sign-off from the government, it's harder for them to say, we're going to use some data that is probably OK to use, but we're not 100% sure. They have all of these veto points and, you know, it's the legal, the risk, the infosec departments, and they're all going to say, I'm not sure. And so the government stamp of approval saying like, yes, you can do this. It's a good idea. It's especially important for people who are outside of the financial ecosystem. Um, I, I think that's a big finger on the scale or finger thumb on the scale in terms of like pushing them to actually use the data and go forward.
3: To tie that into the previous conversation on open banking, I think this is a great example of how regulators can play a really helpful, proactive role in getting beneficial initiatives off the ground. It it really makes a big difference to the participants, I think, and the larger participants in particular, having that central push and the, the, the setting of the rules, the collaboration framework that takes place. You know, Dan spoke of the work streams and the number of institutions working together towards a common purpose. I, I think those are really beneficial uh, when, when the regulators take
1: more of a lead role in helping drive these changes. Because I think the the things that the regulators always cared about was affordability and creditworthiness. Like, can you afford this credit? And you know, are you really likely to be able to, to pay it back if you do? So sometimes people can afford it but are not credit worthy because of behavioral reasons. And the only way with with historic credit rating agencies to tell that was your previous performance with credit products. And if you've never had a credit product before then there is no previous performance with with credit products. Or you would maybe have a a salary that get you a a high enough score to kind of give you a ticket to the game. And and Dan, I think that's that's kind of the exclusionary part that you were talking
4: about. Well, and that's exactly the idea of open finance, as opposed to like the more narrow open banking, where it's really only focused on payments and bank accounts, is that people are conducting economic activity all over the place and it's just not captured in the existing credit score system. So, you know, I think it's a really good sign um, as we move into like new uh, administration to see that these different government agencies are actually competing to say, how can we enable folks to use newer alternative data in a way that's fair, in a way that has consumer protection, but really does expand access.
1: -hmm. Uh, Kate, uh, what are your thoughts on this?
2: Yeah, I think it's really exciting, as everyone's touched on, it's really exciting to see this kind of coming as an initiative that's government backed, kind of got big institutional partners as well. But we've had loads of really interesting and exciting conversations on the show in the past with with people that are, you know, to Dan's point, looking at some of this other economic activity and and trying to use that in exciting and interesting ways. So uh, I think one example that springs to mind that we've had in the show is uh, sort of a fintech called Asuzu, who are using uh, renting, rental data to kind of looking at rental payments uh, to kind of help again supplement this this credit score so reporting directly back to to some of the big you know credit agencies you know the rental payments you're making you know, they had a, a partnership I think with Goldman Goldman Sachs last year to kind of roll that out across Goldman's uh, you know real estate portfolio so yeah I think it's I think it's really exciting um and as you mentioned kind of in the intro to the story you know this is an area that skews disproportionately towards black and Hispanic people and I think obviously the key, Uh, cynicism that came out of the aftermath of the Black Lives Matter movement last year was, is this actually going to make a difference? Is this actually going to translate into different outcomes for for these communities? And stories like this give me hope that actually this this is creating momentum for some of the changes that we needed to see in financial services. Like actually I'm overhearing more and more conversations in some of the the banks that we speak to where they're genuinely, genuinely thinking, how do we put changes in place that will help us to serve these communities better. Um, and yeah, this this hopefully is the start of, of that translating into real manifest differences in the financial experiences of some of these communities.
1: And, and as you step back and look at the economy as well, there's the, the window of people that, as, as you described it, Dan, that were Main Street, that were the bread and butter of um, the, the main high street banks – it's getting smaller. Like the middle class is hollowing out. Each generation has less of a share of wealth than than the one before it. Um, the generational power index um, came out recently. Um, I think it's I think it's by Alderman, I'm not sure who it's by. Check it out. Google it. Super interesting. The share of income between generations is, is decreasing as, as you get to the younger generations. So it's harder and harder for people to build a credit score. Then if you lack privilege from given your upbringing, it's even less likely. So your opportunity is narrow and narrow and that population of people that have less opportunity is narrow. But on the other side of that, technology has made it cheaper to onboard somebody. So my cost of acquisition has gone down. My cost to serve has gone down. So the hurdle I have to hit in order to make this customer profitable is much, much lower. Therefore, doing good can be good business. And I think that's super powerful that the the wave of FinTech hasn't just benefited FinTechs. And now we're seeing the the banks start to to embrace some of that as well. Um, Any final thoughts on this before I move us to stories we didn't have time to cover? Alrighty, I'm seeing shaking heads. I think we've done done that one justice, hopefully. Um, listeners do reach out at hello at 11 if you if you have your own thoughts. Um, but we're going to move on to a uh, few stories we didn't have time to cover, but still deserve a shout out. Kate, do you want to give us a start?
2: Yeah, sure. first story comes over from Finextra. So Bunk becomes the first European issuer to launch True Name Cards. So Dutch digital bank Bunk has become the first European issuer of Mastercard True Name Cards, offering transgender and non-binary people the ability to use their chosen name on eligible credit cards. The rollout by Bunk to the 30 countries in which it operates marks the EU launch of the cards by Mastercard following a successful campaign in the US. Effective immediately, eligible existing bank credit and debit card holders will be able to request a new card which displays their chosen name. Mark Barnett, President Mastercard Europe, says this will allow people to use their true name securely, simply and with pride. We call on the industry to apply these standards for everyone. Um, Yeah, I love this story. This is is so awesome to see. The vast majority of us use our, our payment cards on pretty much a daily basis, so I can't really even begin to imagine how stressful and upsetting it must be for transgender and non-binary people to have that constant reminder of this you know, version of themselves that they don't recognise, that you know, doesn't represent them. Um, so, yeah, this feels like a really great step forwards and one that I hope the wider industry will, will follow. You know, there's still, you know, we were talking about... Um, Excluded groups. In the previous story, you know, there's still a long way to go for the wider financial ecosystem to put right some of the systemic imbalances that impact the financial outcomes and experiences of the LGBT plus community. But you know, there's been some really exciting launches in this space. I think followed the the launch of daylight and new lgbt plus fintech in the us last year and their co-founders uh, billy simmons and, and rob curtis do a great job on social media of sort of talking about some of these issues that this community faces so would recommend checking them out on social media if, if it's something you want to find out more about but yeah uh, really great to see and hopefully the start of uh, just a, a forward momentum for, for this across the industry
1: here here um next story the fca warns uk fintechs against comparing themselves to banks Many fintech startups have apparently unfairly been comparing themselves to banks and are failing to warn consumers about the risks of signing up for their services, according to the financial regulator in the UK. Uh, The FCA ordered more than 300 companies to write to their customers within six weeks to remind them of the risks of storing their cash in accounts that are not covered by the financial services compensation scheme. It also warned that some companies were misleading customers about the extent to which some of their products are regulated. The letter was also sent to chief executives of companies that operate under a so-called e-money license. The concerns highlight the growing anxiety among regulators about the size and influence of lightly regulated payments companies after the collapse of German payments group Wirecard last year so okay I, I get this one if you're not a bank you don't get to call yourself a bank um being a bank with a capital b means you are subject to very stringent controls and it's very very hard um, to deal with but it, actually as we look at wirecard the system worked like the the uk uh e-money issuers uh, all held the deposits in, in a regulated bank that was actually you know sort of those funds were protected it wasn't. FSCS guaranteed, which is the UK equivalent of FDIC. Um, it, you didn't have that same level of guarantee, so I can see why the regulator is saying, hey, guys, tell the truth. You know, it's a bit convenient for you to try and pretend you're a bank when you're not. I'm also reminded of Jamie Dimon's shareholder letter and Anna Botin, the uh, president of Santander, who started talking about, it's unfair, there isn't a level playing field with fintechs. They they ride on our rails and get all of the benefits of looking like us, but, but yet they're not us. Um, I really think this is gonna be an interesting area of of lobbying that comes in the next twelve months as as people fight back against fintechs and say, wait, we are the only true banks and try and scare consumers into working back with them. But that just doesn't feel like a winning strategy to me. It it's it, this one's this one's quite sad. I get why the regulator's worried. Uh something similar happened in the US as well. I think Chime and Varro and a few others have been told off for being too close to being banks. Uh but at the same time, let's just think up another word, think up another protection scheme, make sure consumers are protected, that everybody understand what's going on um, without it sort of being, um, you know, maybe I'm reading the headlines wrong. But um, this, this just felt like a, a backward step rather than a proactive step. But shout out to all of the folks in the regulators trying to do the right thing. Kate.
2: Don't wind up Simon Taylor, that's what I've learned. So, yeah. Um, Amex is bringing Buy Now Pay Later to air travel. So, American Express is making a move into the Buy Now Pay Later movement, offering US consumer card members the option to pay for plane flights in instalments. Customers that book flights that cost more than $100 through Amex Travel will soon be able to choose to pay with the firm's Planet option of monthly instalments with a fixed monthly fee. Buy Now Pay Later has quickly become big business, and Amex research suggests it is a popular option for travelers. More than a third of Americans surveyed say they are looking for deals or flexible payment options to pay for their next trip, including Buy Now Pay Later. In fact, 62% of millennials are interested in a Buy Now Pay Later offering that comes with their credit card, apparently. Um, So, yeah, it's definitely not a surprise to see Buy Now, Pay Later poppy up in the travel sector. Uh, I think it was also just announced that a UK startup rather wittily named Fly Now, Pay Later, has topped uh, up a Series A round, I think, for about £45 million. So, yeah, obviously lots of money still to kind of get invested into this space, and it makes sense for the travel stuff to to overlap. But I'm intrigued to see this coming kind of from Amex. Anecdotally, when I speak to customers, big travel costs are often one of those kind of main reasons why people choose to get certain credit cards to break down those costs over time to earn points you know we know from what we see in the U.S. customers are very very savvy about the cards that they have and the cards that they use and they want to really kind of get the most out of those so it's interesting to see Amex preemptively moving away from that or diversifying you know we've talked a lot about you know the face-off between credit cards and buy now pay later on the show over the last few months so perhaps this is Amex trying to get ahead of that but I'm interested to see how easy it is to actually use in reality. You know, we know that that kind of frictionless checkout experience is a key part of what's driven the success of Buy Now Pay Later to date. And they've said that it's only going to be on offer if you book through Amex's own travel system. So that feels a little bit uh, to me. But, um, and I also want to know how much they're planning to charge because again, you know, how competitive is it like to be? The US is a huge competitive market, both for credit cards and Buy Now Pay Later. So yeah, that's a big challenge for them, but one to keep an eye on.
1: Yeah, PayPal's done super well since they have added buy now, pay later, so it's going to be one to watch. And um, Kate, as we've done consumer research a number of times uh, outside of uh, everyday fast-moving consumer goods the, and fashion and, and, and other sectors, then travel is one that comes up so, so often as a reason for credit. So um, yeah, there's, there's something there, but execution is everything, as you say. All right, time for our, and finally, story. N26 partners with Tinder. There's got to be a swipe right joke in here somewhere. Um, Anyway, uh, N26 has teamed up with Tinder um, to offer N26 customers 50% off Tinder Gold, with up to 90% for premium accounts. Uh, Tinder Gold, for those unfamiliar, is a paid version of the free Tinder app where Tinder Gold members get one free boost per month, which ramps up your profile's visibility, making you one of the top profiles in your area for 30 minutes. On average, this leads to 10x more views in that half hour in their blog post uh, they both say uh, whether you're hoping to make a new friend or spark a love connection tinder gold and n26 make it easy to supercharge your social life simply open your n26 app go to the explore tab and select tinder from the list of partners tap the link provided and create your tinder gold account using the pre-filled promo code happy swiping who wants to jump in on this
2: well, the thing I've learned, I mean, so I need to declare my biases. So I am a, a historic Tinder user. I met my husband on Tinder, so I've not used it for for many, many moons now. But what I have learned over the years, you know, we work with quite a lot of different uh, you know, companies all around the world. What I've learned is that. Uh, you know, these kinds of dating apps are still perceived very, very differently in different markets around the world. So um, I've, I've to my cost when I've revealed I met my husband on Tinder, that in some markets that does not go down so well. Um, so yeah, I'd be interested to see obviously, which I don't know if we've, we've talked about it. I don't know which markets this is going to be available in, maybe in European markets. It's not such a
1: big deal, but yeah, um, yeah,
2: it's, it's, it's an interesting one. I mean, again, I was going to say
1: this podcast is global, you know. Yeah. that, too, right?
2: <laughs> Well, I do. That's what I'm saying in the UK, when I met my husband, it was all very legit. Um, when I talked about this, when I was in South Africa, it did not go down quite so well. Um, so yeah, I've, I've learned my lesson, but no, I think it's, you know, it's a, an interesting perk to offer. I guess they're going after a sort of, younger audience so you know why not and there's obviously you know, post post lockdown there's lots of people who've not had the opportunity to get out and and, and meet people and, and sort of you know socialize so yeah maybe a good opportunity for them to kind of ride that post-covid lockdown wave of people wanting to get back out there
1: it's better than free phone insurance and it's got on a press release any other thoughts on this I mean,
4: everything's fintech now. <laughs> uh,
1: everything is fintech. It, indeed, turns out dating apps are even fintech. Uh, like, what other ridiculous things will be fintech next? I've,
3: I have no comment as to whether I was ever a Tinder Gold member, potentially. Um, but I will say, more broadly, I think the interesting thing here is seeing customer origination journeys starting in other apps, and and so I think it's a, an interesting concept that's gaining more traction, you know, as a banking app or a fintech app, um, it's another way to engage your users, deliver value, and potentially generate commercial returns. So
1: that concept is, a, is an interesting one, I believe. Yeah, it's super value, isn't it? The other thing that struck me from this is like uh, neobanks and challenger banks looking for ways to uh, attract, retain, and monetize their user base. Um, and get into that premium account subscription space. You know, Revolut has done this. Um, Monzo has launched it. Uh, We haven't seen it so much in the US, largely because Interchange is such a a license to print money um, still for for a lot of the the challenger banks there. But that sort of monetization route that the European banks are forced to go down is is kind of an interesting model to to see how, you know, is there space for a super app of financial services or actually is, is banking better something that's invisible and hidden and the you know the experience is really embedded in some other thing. And we're seeing all of that sort of sort of play out. All righty. Well, that wraps up this week's show. Uh, thank you so much to all of our guests. Uh, where can people find out more about you? Let's start with Dan.
4: Yeah, so if you want to know more about plaid, we're just plaid.com, plaid.com/slash blog for all the latest announcements. And then if you want to talk to me, uh probably Twitter is the best way, DBcon on Twitter.
1: Like the sound of that. Brian, how about you? Um, for HSBC,
3: uh, we've got a great LinkedIn profile where you can see all the latest on Global Wallet. And for me personally, LinkedIn is also, uh, where you can find me. And
1: Kate?
2: Yeah, definitely not on Tinder anymore. So that, that profile was closed up a long time ago, but yeah, on Twitter at k8.moody or on LinkedIn, Kate Moody
1: and you'll find me mostly changing nappies, um, but also at SY Taylor on Twitter or Simon Taylor on LinkedIn. Um, thank you so much for listening. If you like what you've heard, well, why don't you just tell everybody you know that likes fintech or even people that don't to go ahead and subscribe to this show um, and leave us a review because it really, really helps us and it helps others find the show. Um, and if you want to join the conversation, find 11FS on social media or search for Fintech Insider and you can email podcasts at 11FS.com. What stories should we be covering? What are we missing? You tell us. We'll check it out. Thank you so much and bye for now.